Brown Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and organic agriculture with people in Maine and beyond, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association in conjunction with WERU, your community radio station. Common Ground Radio can be heard on the second Thursday of each month at 4 p.m. on 89.9 FM and at WERU.org. My name is Holly Cedarholm, and I'm your host for today. We'll be discussing natural dyeing of plants and minerals with two fiber artists from Maine. Up first, I'll be speaking to Jude Shang. Jude has a lifelong interest in fibers and textiles. A knitter, weaver, and former shepherd, she focuses on dyeing natural fibers raised and spun in Maine with plant material grown in her dye garden or foraged locally for workshops and to sell. Jude, welcome to the show. Good to be here. So I'd like to start by having you tell me about your dye work and how you came to be interested in natural dyes. I think I was always interested in color, but really got started in natural dyeing in the early to mid-70s when I found a book in a used bookstore about natural dyeing and bought it even though we were living in a fifth floor walk up on the Lower East Side with two very, very young children. And it wasn't until several years later when I had an opportunity to really give it a try. What was that first dye project that you tried? Let's see, it probably was something like Goldenrod, which turns out is a very good dye. All of the Goldenrod species work very well with anywhere from a nice clear yellow through to deep golds and even greens. So that's where I started. So for those of us who are not familiar with dyeing, what is the difference between using natural dyes and synthetic dyes? Well, natural dyes have been used for thousands of years and thanks to archeologists, especially in uh, areas like uh, desert environments where things are very dry and don't rot easily, and recent advances in uh, chemistry, the scientists are able to analyze not only what fibers were used by different peoples around the world, but actually which plants. So more and more information is uh, becoming available, and I find that really exciting. And then in the 1850s in Germany, and in England, chemists were looking for ways to produce cheap dyes that could um, make them a lot of money. The Bayer Corporation started out in dyeing, and they did develop a whole series of chemical dyes, which became very popular and could be used on all kinds of fibers. And until kind of the recent revival of interest in natural dyeing, uh, probably in the last 20 years or so, very few people were continuing with the um, old technology. So you mentioned that science has been exploring some of the fibers that these natural traditional dyes have been used on. I'm wondering how do natural fibers such as wool and mohair and angora from animals and linen, cotton and hemp from plants, how do those interact with natural dyes versus synthetic dyes? In general, they do very well. Uh, synthetic dyes that aren't derived from plant material, like some of the uh, nylon sort of uh, developed in the last hundred years, 
do not take the um, natural dyes at all well. So something like a typical polyester uh, just doesn't work. But the natural dyes have a real affinity for the um, natural fibers. Although in general, uh, fibers derived from plants like linen, cotton, rami, hemp, do not take the dyes as well. The colors aren't as deep and saturated, which is what I'm always going for. I really like the really strong colors that I can get from animal fibers like alpaca and wool, silk, of course, and many others. One of your goals in dyeing is to get these deep colors. So can we step back and cover the process a little bit of dyeing and go over some of the key components? I know when I'm reading about dyeing, which is something I've never done, there are a lot of terms that come up, such as scouring and mordants, and I I don't really know what all of those mean. So I'm wondering um, if we could just start at the beginning and you can offer an overview. Sure. So whatever fiber you're going to use, first it has to be nice and clean, free of any dirt or oils. So it could be lanolins. Uh, it could be oils used to process fibers into nice threads, which could be done in factories where in order for the threads to run through machinery, there's often some sort of an oil added. When you buy certain yarns directly from a mill, um, it's often advised that you wash it before you knit or crochet or weave or anything to reduce, re, um, reduce any of that residue. So that process is called scouring, which sounds very dire. It sounds like you're cleaning a barbecue grill, but really it just means a good washing. Uh, no matter what your fibers are. And um, even though there are fibers, yarns, fabrics, whatever, sold as ready to dye, I always wash them and usually warm water and some a mild detergent like uh, dishwashing liquid or shampoo is enough to hopefully reduce any you know dirt, grime, oil, and make it ready to proceed with the following steps. And what steps come after scouring? Okay, so the easiest thing to describe is using animal fibers. So after the fiber, whatever you use, I use a lot of uh, yarns, is washed, scoured, and rinsed. Then we go ahead to mordanting. Mordanting is the adding of a metal salt, for technical term, to the fiber, which helps permanently bind the fiber to the eventual dye. And it comes from an old French, actually older Latin word meaning to bite. So mordant uh, is a chemical that bites onto the fiber and bites onto the dye. And there have been many used in different parts of the world over the, over the centuries, but I typically stick with an alum aluminum salt, which are very safe to use. They're used in foods and medical and cosmetic uses as well. So there's not a concern of environmental harm or harm to the dyer. And it's used in very small amounts and it just has the effect of making the dye permanently locked into the fiber. And after the fiber has been mordanted, 
sort of primed, if you will, for the material to hold color. Is that when you introduce the dye plant? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Typically, after it's mordanted, you rinse again just to make sure there isn't any excess of anything. And then you can go right into dyeing, which can be done without heat uh, for some dyes, but it takes longer, maybe hours or days, or in others require some heat um, and using natural things like wool, one wants to keep the temperature modest. You know, I typically uh, keep it under a simmer. I'm looking at something like 160, 170 degrees at the most to be sure that all of the dye is absorbed without harming the fiber. And the important part of this in, in the pot that you're using is that the material you're dyeing can float freely in the pot. It can kind of swim around. You turn it now and then to make sure all particles of the fiber, as it were, absorb the dye, unless you want to do some fancy um, sort of tie-dye effect. But normally, if you want to do a nice, even job, uh, you might put two skeins of knitting yarn into a four-gallon or five-gallon cooking pot for that process to make sure there's lots of room for it to, to swim. I like the idea of thinking of it swimming there on your stove. <laughs> In addition to a pot, are there other tools or special equipment that you need to do dyeing at home? Really, most uh, equipment that you might use in the kitchen, however, you want to be careful to segregate that, all of that equipment away from cooking. So uh, you want to look around like I do at thrift stores or sales to get some pots, measuring devices, you know, measuring cups, spoons that sort of thing, some tongs or old spoons to stir with. And um, I also love my kitchen scale, which will measure both imperial and metric, because frequently when one is dying, the whole process, the uh, mordanting and the dying, you're dealing with a small percentage. So if you had, for instance, a uh, three and a half ounce skein of yarn, you might only need 7% of that weight as the mordant or perhaps 20% as the dye. And I really don't want to try to figure out what 7% weight of three and a half ounces is. So I love the metric system. Where are you learning these recipes or have they come from your practice over time? Like, how do you know that formula? There are records going back hundreds of years, maybe longer, uh, early dyers, certainly up until maybe the 1600s, certainly guarded their secrets very carefully because they wouldn't want the fellow in the next town, and it usually was a fellow, uh, to copy their successes. So some of the older books, which are still available or have been recopied, are a little iffy. It's kind of using a very old uh, recipe book for cooking where they might say a piece of butter the size of an egg and you think, what size egg are they talking about? Is it a hen? Is it a goose? You know, So that can be a little confusing. In more recent times, dyers have translated some of those old books and old uh, methods into more 
uh, commonly used terms, and it's very helpful because this is an international adventure. There are people from all over the world, different cultures and languages, who use different words for, say, a, a typical chemical or a dye. It's sort of like botany. If you call something a plant by its common name, that may be useful in your state or region or even just your village, but have no use for somebody in, in another part of the world. Well, speaking of botany, you grow a dye garden. So when did yes. you start growing and cultivating plants to dye with? Well, I've been a gardener for quite a while. Uh, we have a couple of acres here in South China in our new home or forever home. Uh, I've lived in different parts of the country and we have a large vegetable garden and I'm growing and planting more native plants. So I have a dye garden and I did this in previous places. I grow, I think, a, probably a total of about 12 different plants, but I'm down to four or five that are really my favorites, just being the best or not too repetitive. Many, many natural dyes give us yellows and tans and golds, and there's only so many of those that I really want. But I do grow six or eight different dye plants in a reasonable amount and dry the plants or the leaves or the flowers, whatever's used for use throughout the year. What are some of your favorite plants that you grow in your garden? One of the, one of the big favorites is uh, a particular Coreopsis that is actually called commonly Dyer's Coreopsis, Coreopsis tinctoria. And the tinctoria in its name tell you, tells you it's a dye plant. And it has the ability to dye various fibers anywhere from a yellow to a peachy to an orangey, or by raising the pH, and pH comes into this a lot, you can get a really vibrant reddish orange. So that's a lot of fun. When I do workshops, I often include that plant so that we can all see how the color can be modified and changed with the simple addition of something like some ammonia or washing soda to raise the pH a little bit. So that, that's a lot of fun. I didn't realize that you could have a color shift that way by playing with the pH. That's really interesting. It is fun. Some, so with some certain plant materials, it makes no difference whatsoever. And other materials are very subject to change through a pH shift going from acid to alkaline or back and forth, or heat, or using other types of additives just to play around with colors. So you can get a huge range of colors and sometimes happy accidents. Are there any happy accidents that you've stumbled across in your dying life? Well, I don't think I've discovered anything new. I, I like to tell people who are interested in learning at a workshop or something that because this has been done for thousands of years, you're probably not going to find anything that someone else hasn't tried. But one of my favorite experiments was using dried red onion skins, which occasionally will give you a mossy green instead of the usual tan that or orangey colors that onion skins do. And I've only been able to achieve this once or twice in over 45 years. It could have been the soil it was grown, the time of year, the content of the water, 
there are many, many variables involved in dying. So this is something for people who don't mind surprises. I think people who like predictable results might be frustrated. In addition to dyers, coreopsis, what are some of the other plants, maybe not on the orange-yellow spectrum, that you are able to cultivate in your garden or here in Maine? Okay, well, there is a particular kind of indigo called Japanese indigo, and the current botanical name is um, Persicaria tinctoria, and it does very well in our environment because Japan is also at the cooler end of the temperate uh, climate, and that will give you anywhere from um, a simple kind of an aqua pale blue to a deep dark indigo blue, but would have one would have to grow huge amounts of it to do that. So I happen to love aqua, so I'm perfectly happy to grow uh, kind of a I guess a five by five plot of the uh, Japanese indigo, and then I can dye some wool or silk or whatever with it. So that's a really pretty color. And then some of the plants that I can forage locally will give me different shades of different types of brown from a chocolatey brown to a rusty brown. Greens are a little difficult, but when one gets into natural dyeing, one discovers that even if they weren't really fond of yellows and oranges, that they're so ubiquitous in natural dyeing that you come to love them. Are there other yellows and oranges that you're particularly fond of plants that turn things yellow and orange? Well, goldenrod is very good. It's a very good dye. And by good, I mean it's light fast. That exposure to UV light won't change it. And that's an important part. Sometimes one sees people who haven't really learned the skills or aren't really interested in, let's say, truth in advertising, <laughs> using, using materials or methods that don't create light fast dyes. When I'm doing things to show or to sell, I want to make sure that they are going, the color's going to last, or if it's one of those pretty but not so great colors like the my tea cozy here, which is a greenish, um, aren't going to be exposed to bright light. So that's, that's part of it. Uh, the yellow cosmos, you know, there's the usual pink and white pretty cosmos flowers. The yellow to orange cosmos, which is often grown in gardens, gives a nice yellow. It's tricky to get red. Uh, well, it's not so much tricky. It takes a while. Uh, there's a plant called matter. It's a little shrub, an interesting looking shrub that you can plant in the spring in here in Maine. And three to four years later, you dig up the whole shrub, cut off all the roots, wash them, dry them, pound them into a powder. You can also buy it ready-made as a liquid if you don't want to wait four years. And that gives you a range of red tones, anywhere from pinky reds to salmony reds to red red, fire engine red, to purples. And that's something that's fun to grow. It just takes a while because the only part of the plant that really provides the color is the roots. So if folks are interested in dying with that, they should plant that next year. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> Start now or, you know, you can get a foretaste of it by buying a powder or a liquid and just paying other people to do more of the processing as the case with so many things that we consume. 
I wanted to circle back to some of the forage plants. You mentioned foraging plants for using in your dyeing. What are some of the things that you find in the landscape around you? Well, let's see. We, we covered goldenrods, Queen Anne's lace, which is certainly invasive where I used to live in Connecticut and becoming so here gives you nice yellows. I've gotten some nice greeny tones from willow leaves, some barks and some woods give nice tones. The clippings from my pear and apple trees when I prune them give kind of pinky beiges, which are quite good. I also have been able to get some bark from chestnut trees. I don't have any here on my property, but the inner bark of chestnut, if you peel away the bark, there's the grayish outside, and then the inner bark is a pretty chestnut, orangey red, very fibrous, and that can be used and get gets a really nice chestnut color. So if you happen to know someone who has some chestnuts, you can get in line for those trees because the traditional chestnuts only live to be about 20 or so years old. So unless we continue developing healthier chestnuts that resist chestnut blights, that's really the only source. So that's a particularly fun color to get. You are listening to Common Ground Radio on WERU 89.9 FM. I'm Holly Cedarholm, and on today's show, we're talking about using plant materials grown and foraged in Maine to naturally dye textiles. I'm currently in conversation with Jude Shang. So Jude, when we were talking about the dyeing process earlier, we talked about putting the wool or material in the dye pot, but I'm wondering, do you make like a tea with the plants to kind of like extract the color into the water? That's pretty much how it works. It's sort of like making tea or soup. Um, and you can put the fiber and the plant material and the mordant all in one pot. It's a little less exact. And then you may end up with all kinds of bits and pieces of plant material stuck all over your fiber. So it's a little wasteful. It's a little uncertain. So the usual way is to just cook up for most dyes, just cook them up, whether they're dry or fresh, and then strain it out, strain out your, your tea or your soup, and then add your fiber materials, which are already wet. That's important. If they go into the pot dry, they don't eat, uh, evenly soak up. And the other point is that it all starts way before anything goes in the pot. You start back before you even washed your fiber, because in most cases, you need to know the weight of your fiber to get accurate results. And let's say I was picking something like fresh marigolds, which give, again, yellows and oranges, I would want the same weight of the flowers as I had with my fiber. But if I dry the marigolds, which I do for winter, I only need about a third the weight because most of the water, of course, most of the plant material is water. So that's a little bit of something to consider too, saving space. Some people freeze their plant material. My freezer is for food. Sometimes I sneak something in, but generally I dye things just like you would herbs. I have a little studio over the garage that is warm and dry most of the year. I can dry the plant material that I 
want to save for later. Once you had whatever you're dyeing in the pot with the dye um, for the appropriate length of time, do you then rinse it and hang it and dry it? Like, how do you treat the material once it's been processed? So depending on the plant material and the result you want, in some cases in 30 minutes or less, you'll get a color you like. And in some cases it might take longer. Typically for most plant materials, I'll then let it cool in the pot and soak overnight. Just, I'm very greedy about the color. I want every possible molecule of the color to attach. So I'll soak it overnight. Then I typically hang it up to dry out of the sun. Um, and then after it's dried for a day, sometimes more, then I rinse it. So as I said, I'm very greedy about the color. There's a lot of time. <laughs> There's a lot of, you know, a little bit of quick action and then some checking your temperature and stirring now and then. And then there's just waiting. But I like that because um, I can get all the color I want. But when I do a workshop, for instance, it might be two or three hours and we're sort of introducing uh, the concepts. We might do something like dye a silk scarf because that's very quick, not as concerning about shrinking the fiber, and we can get nice strong colors within a very short time, even half an hour, and then people can say, aha, there it is. I looked at some of your workshop offerings, and it seems like you have such a great world that you bring people into in terms of the dyeing process and the different plants you can use and the different dyeing techniques. And I saw a mention of tie dyeing and over dyeing. And I'm wondering what those techniques are and when you would use them, like what are you hoping to achieve? Well, in over dyeing, which is pretty commonly done because certain colors are hard to achieve in nature. You know, we look around our green world, but as we're experiencing right now, the chlorophyll on these deciduous trees is chemically breaking down, revealing the yellows and orangey colors, even some reds that were there all along. So chlorophyll is, is delicate and it doesn't like heat. And in case of our trees and leaves, it gets old. So in order to get really good greens, it's been very common to first dye something with a very good strong yellow and then take that same fabric or fiber and then dye it with indigo, which is an entirely different process than the kind of dyeing I've been describing. Or in Northern Europe, British Isles, there's a, another plant that has uh, some attributes, some chemistry of, of common indigos called woad. The old, uh, what we learned in, in nursery school, yellow and blue make green. So that's a common one. And then sometimes you want to do a purple and there aren't a lot of great purple dyes naturally. So one might dye something with a good red like the matter or cochineal, which comes from an insect from Central America and is the best red available. Uh, then one would then proceed to over dye it, dye it again with uh, indigo to get some shades of purple that are better meaning longer lasting, more light fast than some of the naturally available purples. Well, you answered one of my other questions, which was, are there colors that can't be achieved naturally? But it sounds like through 
the layering and the overdyeing, you can get a whole palette of different colors. Yeah, I found even just using the alum mordant and not even bothering too much with, with doing an indigo vat, which is a little more complex. Some people specialize it in it. I just happen to enjoy dyeing what I have around here. So I found I can get a huge range of colors. Some of the hardest colors to get besides greens and some purples are black. Black is very hard. And I just recently learned from a Scandinavian dyer, there's a lot of great, in, great information as well as a lot of bad information on the internet. But a Scandinavian dyer uh, told us that in some areas in Europe, in the old days, you know, 500 years or more, that a dyer who was considered a master dyer would have a black flag in front of their house or their little shop, because black was so difficult to achieve without harming the fibers, that that was the mark of a true master, that they could make a beautiful, deep, rich, light, fast, black fabric. That's fascinating. You just mentioned there's a lot of bad information on the internet, and I wanted to shift to that for a minute. So you also mentioned earlier that dyeing with natural dyes has kind of had a, a renaissance, so to speak, like you said in the past 20 years or so. And I've noticed that it's become increasingly popular with lots of books and blogs and social media accounts and textile businesses. And in preparing for our conversation today, I read a blog on plant dyeing that mentioned that there has been a lot of misinformation, especially when it comes to discoloration or fading over time, this concept of light fast that you've brought up. So I'm wondering if that's what you're talking about in terms of bad information on the internet. Yes, very much. It's unfortunate because I do hang out on the internet with a couple of good groups led by people who have decades of experience. And over and over again, people will pop in and say, oh, look, you know, I, I have some red cabbages and I'm going to dye something. And then other members will very gently say, well, it's going to fade. Those Many of these reds that are in berries or certain other things like the cabbages and the beets come from chemicals of the anthocyanin family, which again, do not like heat. So as soon as they're dyed, it's like if you spill some wine on your white shirt and you wash the shirt and it's not a pretty Merlot color where you spilled it. It's just a, you know, unpleasant grayish brownish stain. And it is frustrating because there are, as there are in many fields, uh, including gardening and cooking and all sorts of things, there are people who hear something and repeat it without, without really experiencing or checking. And that's part of modern life. But on the upside, what I've really enjoyed once I ventured into some of these internet groups and more recent publications is that be, due to the internet, those of us who learn to die kind of in the, the European, which includes North American traditions, are learning about dye plants and insects and, and minerals in other parts of the world that are strong traditions and, and make wonderful dyes. You know, somebody in a small village in Thailand might say, well, there's a plant we have here that makes this color 
and everybody's so excited because we've never heard of it. And perhaps some of these materials, like the dyes themselves, will become available. I certainly don't advocate moving plants around the world because we have a big problem with invasive species. But it's wonderful to learn what peoples in other cultures, in other climates, have been able to do and pass on through their thousands of years. And it's just delightful uh, to learn more and more things. And similarly, how people in other parts of the world use some of the same dyes that we use in different ways, like batik and tie-dyeing. And, and it's, it's an ever-increasing information on the good side. Well, thank you, Jude, for joining me today and sharing more about your work with natural dyes and dye plants. It's been lovely to talk with you. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. For the second half of today's show, we'll be continuing our exploration into dyeing with plants. I'm joined by Samantha Barone, an artist who recently moved from the Bronx to Maine. She works with botanical and mineral dyes and is especially interested in how frost interacts with plant dye stuffs. Samantha Barone Textiles produces one-of-a-kind and short-run home furnishings, clothing, and accessories dyed by hand with plants and minerals. Everything is handmade using antique, vintage, and mindfully sourced materials, including old blankets, linen, vintage cotton and silk, and burlap coffee bean sacks. Samantha, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, I wanted to start out by hearing a little bit more about your dye work. As the rust dyer, <laughs> what happened was in my attempt to use discarded textiles, I was collecting antique table linens and some of what I found had rust stains on them. I momentarily thought about dyeing over or bleaching them out, but decided it would be more interesting to work with the marks. I used old rusty nails and washers that I had in the studio to augment stains and, and make patterns. And I started collecting rusty objects like barn door hinges and drill bits and old machinery, cast iron, grates, that kind of thing. And found that rust, it was just a really wonderful regenerative dye stuff. And um, we'll, we'll talk about regenerative and sustainable sustainability. But, you know, the fact that rust is corrosive and suggestive of neglect and stagnation, it exemplifies the tension between permanence and ephemera, which I find really interesting. And it's light, fast, and washable, and yet it is decay itself. And it's a humble element that creates unconventional beauty, let's say. So the curiosity led me to the discovery of astonishingly beautiful and unexpected colors that come from the interaction between rust and tannins that naturally occur in botanical dye stuffs. So this alchemy has really fueled my interest in plant dyes. Many plants naturally contain various amounts of tannin and tannin always shifts color. So for example, avocado and rust makes a smoky gray tone, onion skins and rust makes olive green and browns, for example. So working with natural dyes always means you're going to be unwrapping surprises that will be kind of, well, maybe not impossible to, well, impossible to duplicate precisely, let's say. And this is both the joy and the challenge of natural dyeing. 
And uh, and I like the tension between the two. Exactitude and replication are not what this is about. So earlier in the show, I talked to a dye artist who was telling me a little bit about mordants as part of the dye process. Is rust or the iron in the the rusty elements that you're collecting, is that acting as a mordant? Yeah, for sure. It's not about exactitude and replication, but there are elements of discipline. It's not all random and anarchy in the studio. So basic knowledge of chemistry is useful and mordants like, you know, iron, the the iron of rust, help color to adhere to the cloth. And after baths, an iron after bath can change the color in subtle, both subtle and dramatic ways. So while it's not possible to match colors precisely, it is possible to get close and gradation of color among, say, a group of napkins or placemats. And what I like to call, you know, an addition, each addition is unique and interesting, depending on the, the dye bath. Just backing up a little bit to how you got started being interested in dyeing, were you already working with textiles and fibers when you started on this rust journey and exploring rust and dye, or were you doing other forms of artwork? Yeah, I've, I've been working with textiles for a really long time. And, you know, I guess I've I've always really been interested in in it. You know, this style of making has always been percolating. I guess I learned this from my mother. You know, my mother's sewing and mending of her clothes. I, I can recall at the age of 10 or so, I was mending and patching a favorite pair of denim shorts. And I see now how this was kind of a decisive moment for me in my childhood as, as a maker. I can still picture those shorts with lots of scrap fabric patched and stitched over. So mending a beloved object rather than tossing it, you know, and buying something new, it, it, you know, like it just didn't occur to me then. I wanted those shorts and I, and I wanted to mend them. So, you know, this idea of making things from antiquated old objects, remaking things um, has always been part of my sensibility. And I think that, you know, living with beloved objects that have meaning and accepting that they change over time is a different sensibility than what we're used to buying new and replacing and novelty and trying to maintain newness and, you know, pristine condition. You know, that's, you know, it's sort of a reframing of, you know, how to think about consuming consumption in, in the world we live in today. So you happen to um, write an article for the Maine Organic Farmer and Gardener, which is Mofka's publication. You talk about this sustainability and reusing materials and specifically around dyeing with natural materials, with plants and minerals. And it seems to be part of an environmental ethic that you have. So I'm wondering what's the connection for you for plant dyeing um, and sustainability? Yeah, I'm so glad that we're going to talk about this, Holly, because, you know, sustainability is that overworked term that by now it's it's been employed as a marketing device for companies to sell goods, whether or not they're actually incorporating sustainable or ethical practices. And when a product is marketed as eco-conscious or ethical, I wonder what that means. It's a vague term with a moralistic tone. Ethical means principled, but whose principles? Equitable, but to whom? Conscientious, about what? 
So this is where greenwashing comes in. And I like the word sustainable because its synonyms drive home the salient point in a clear way. To sustain is to nurture, to support, to defend, to preserve. And this applies to how I make dyes and create goods. I I love the word ecology, actually, too, possibly because I'm a child of the 70s. Ecology is simultaneously environmental science and the political movement to protect it. And I suppose that's why when I moved to Maine, I wanted to be connected to Mafka and the the idea of reciprocity that the botanist Robin Wall Kimmerer speaks so eloquently and urgently about, that the earth sustains us and we have a responsibility to sustain her too. And, you know, that just reminds me of the kind of interconnectedness of everything. Like take farm to table, food is pharmacy, pharmacy, that's F-A-R-M-A-C-Y. And, you know, the movement away from big agriculture and big pharma and, you know, the intersection of food, pharmacy, natural dyeing and handcraft goods. Like I just, I really like the interconnectedness of of all of that. And I think that's, you know, that's what really drew me to Mafka and what, you know, kind of made me want to move to Maine too. You know, I moved here, you know, having survived the perfect storm of pandemic, societal reckoning, my mother dying of Alzheimer's disease, and, you know, finding refuge in the natural world. And I I feel incredibly fortunate to have this choice, and I definitely don't take it for granted. Some of your work that I've seen really plays with the, the natural world in Maine. You use seaweed in your dying. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, seaweed and invasive weeds have been kind of, you know, my my main experimentation since I got here. Seaweed is really interesting. I've been doing bundle dyeing and creating dye baths with it. I'm still very much in the experimentation phase. And I think about the way we forage and harvest dyes, dye stuffs, plants is important, right? So you know, I want to be careful about how I harvest the seaweed. You know, I don't want to take too much from one area. I like to try to gather it that's already kind of washed up on shore and see what I can do with that. You know, I really like gathering windfallen plants, stuff, you know, leaves and things and branches. So, you know, that's that's all in the mix. But yeah, seaweed, I mean, I, there's more to come with seaweed. I'm s- still very much experimenting with it. I also saw some of your fabrics that are sold at Mafka's storefront in Freeport, the main organic marketplace. I just saw a picture of them, but they were dyed using invasive Japanese knotweed. So you mentioned dyeing with invasives. And the product tag describes using knotweed as, quote, a part of a sustainable regenerative design practice, end quote, which is what we're talking about right now. How did you come to use Japanese knotweed in your dyeing practice? Well, it was really like everything, like all, all like all the ways I've kind of come to natural dyeing, it's by accident. I was staying with my aunt and uncle before I found my house here in Pownall and they're in South Freeport. And they, they have massive amounts of, of Japanese knotweed. So last fall, I asked my, my uncle's gardener to dig up some of the root for me and I would try dyeing with it. And it just 
made this, I mean, it's the, the root itself is, you know, bright orange. So when you see that kind of color on a, on a plant or a root, you know, you're probably going to get a nice color from it when it's, when it's that rich. So, you know, I, I had this, these roots, I stuck it in the dye pot and, you know, brought it up to a gentle simmer and, you know, got this incredibly beautiful golden yellow. And, uh, so I dyed some silk with it and, and silk is great to work with, you know, silk protein fibers with plant dye stuffs. You're going to get a much more vibrant color than say on cellulose, like cotton or linen. Um, it's a nice color, but it's going to be more subtle. So when you're using a protein fiber like wool or silk, you're going to get a, a real richness of color with plant dyes. So, um, you know, so I dyed this piece of silk and then I wrapped, I wrapped it in a rusty object. I can't even remember what I wrapped it in now, but when I unwrapped it, I had this incredible variety of color, like grays to black, like a rich black and pink. And I don't know. I like that pink was so strange. And I, you know, I kind of feel like maybe it's the microbes and the metal. Like, I don't know. It's, uh, there's, it was just really unexpected and gorgeous. So I just thought I need to do more with knotweed and, um, and knotweed you know, also has healing properties. It can be used for Lyme disease and has other medicinal properties. So, I mean, and it's so pervasive here in Maine that I just feel like it's, it's the thing that if we could focus on, I mean, it's going to take concerted and collaborative effort to kind of dig it up and find ways to, you know, to harvest it and use it and, you know, kind of control it. (laughs) And, uh, and it's got, you know, so many uses that, and including dye that I just think it's, it's a great, it's just a great plant and people, you know, hate it and they don't want it growing on their property. So we can figure out ways to like get it and, you know, and do what we can with it. I think it's, I think that's, that would be really great. So that's, um, you know, I'm definitely focused on that. As we speak, my cousin dug some up from my uncle's property and she's got it on the table saw because it's really important to cut it up. I mean, it's it's quite the process to prepare it. You, you know, you want as much surface area as possible when you're when you're creating the dye. So cutting up the root um, is really important in terms of making the dye. This is Common Ground Radio on WERU FM 89.9. Today's discussion is focused on dyeing fiber with natural dyes made from plants and minerals. I'm Holly Cedarholm, and I'm currently talking with artist Samantha Barone. Are there other invasives that you've played around with or explored um, in the dye pot? The knotweed is the main thing. Oh, silverberry. Silverberry, is that what it's called? I think that's what it's called. It's autumn olive, I think is another name for it. So that's that's an invasive weed. So I so I got a very nice golden yellow um, with that. It's working with a mordant. I did an, an alum bath. Alum is another mordant. And that I got a very nice yellow from that. And I think that interacting, I haven't done it yet because I just made the dye pot a couple of days ago. I think that interacting with iron, I'll get a very nice olive green. That's what I'm expecting. 
from that, but who knows? We'll see. <laughs> Your direct seems to have an interest in experimentation and you do this technique called bundle dyeing, which you mentioned earlier. And I was hoping that you could talk more about what bundle dyeing is and how you became interested in it. Well, bundle dyeing sort of happened on a grand scale two summers ago when my husband and I spent a month in Brooklyn, Maine, and the vegetation was so inspiring. And I started collecting windfallen Ragosa rose petals and bundling them into linen and dropping them into a pot with water and twigs and birch bark from the ground and spent tea bags that, you know, that I had and, you know, to just kind of get this rich, this tannin rich dye pot going. And, and when I unwrapped the bundle, I had this, this very rich purple petal imprints um, that, you know, was just so beautiful. So, you know, Coreopsis flowers, false indigo leaves, you know, things from the garden. I just started bundling with and just, you know, experimenting and seeing what kind of results I got. And sometimes the imprint would be really rich and beautiful. And sometimes it would be subtle and I'd want to, you know, retie and, and start again. And, you know, that's always the the process with natural dyeing. You know, you can always over dye and, and, uh, and get richness of color. So if someone were starting out bundle dyeing, what would they need to do? Like, what does that look like? What tools do you need? And how would you do a bundle dye project? You wrote a really great step-by-step article on it. And I'm wondering if you can just sort of condense that. Well, definitely, you know, have a look at the article. I mean, dedicate pots and materials, you know, your utensils to the process. Don't use pots and utensils that you use for food, like dedicate stuff just for your dye practice. So, you know, you need a big pot to either submerge or um, have a grate in the bottom of and do steam. You know, you can bundle anything. You can, if you have an old t-shirt that, you know, you'd like to breathe new life into, you can just gather, especially now this time of year, it's a great time to gather windfallen leaves. They're gonna be very rich with tannin. They're gonna be super saturated with tannin at this time of year as they're, you know, getting ready to, die and fall off the trees. So, you know, you can gather those leaves and bundle them into, you know, lay them onto a piece of cloth and then roll them. Um, You can wrap them around a metal pipe that that metal pipe uh, will act as a mordant and then either dot, you know, drop them into water or a tannin rich dye bath, as I described, or steam. And, you know, usually you, you want it to, to be in the pot at least an hour, I would say. Um, and, you know, often I like to let them, even if when, once I take them out of the, the pot, I let them dry out a bit before I unwrap them. Sometimes that's hard to do because you're excited and you want to see your result. And, you know, I, I get that too. Um, but if you can wait, the imprint will be more pronounced probably. And, you know, it does it produce time really is such an important element in natural dying and it really produces, you know, interesting results. So having, you know, letting time do its thing and having patience with that is, is really important. 
And for someone who hasn't seen a bundle dyed piece of fabric before, like when you unravel it, it will, like you're saying, it has imprints. So it'll have the shape of the leaf or whatever plant material that you're rolling up in the fabric. Is that correct? That's right. Are there other favorite dye materials that you like to work with? You mentioned windfall and some invasives, but are there certain colors that you really like or plants? I'm curious what some of your favorites are. Yeah, well, you know, I like using food waste too. Food waste is really important as a dye stuff too. Uh, I especially like avocado skins and seeds and onion skins. Onion skins, you know, you can gather at your grocery store and your green grocer may thank you for it by cleaning out the the onion shells that have collected there. They make a really beautiful golden yellow and avocado skins and seeds make pink, which you might not think, you know, why wouldn't it make green? Well, it's the flesh of the fruit makes, you know, you, you make your guacamole and then you have the seed and the skin. And very often you can tell, you can see in the skin, it has kind of a pink or red cast to it. And the seeds, when you cut it open is pink, pinker or peach inside. And so you can get this really nice pink color that, and they're very, both of these food waste dye stuffs are very rich in tannin. So when they interact with iron, they, you get these incredible colors, you know, dark, I mean, dark gray, taupey, mauvey color with the, with the avocado and olive green with, with onion skins and pomegranate skins is another, you know, they're another great one also makes the skins, which you might not think because the skin is red, but they make a golden dye and make a very rich black when interacting with rust or iron. You know, it's great to, I mean, just this idea of this, you know, this is the kind of the concept of regenerative design. You have your food, you take the waste from the food, you make dye with it, and then you return it to the earth and your compost. And, you know, it's just this nice process, I think. Where are the textiles that you're dyeing? Where do they end up? So you sell some of them or do you? I have them? a website. I've got some kitchen towels at, at the main organic marketplace right now. And I'm hoping to be working with, you know, other places around Maine. I'm just, I'm still getting settled here. So, you know, there's more to come. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm a New Yorker, so I, you know, I'm a city girl. And now I'm, you know, it's kind of like, now I'm in the country. So I, there's like a lot to learn. And, you know, so I'm kind of trying to settle in and figure out how to, how to do this, this lifestyle, which I love so much. And I, I really, I'm so grateful to be here. Is there any advice or tips that you have for folks who are interested in getting started with their own natural dying practice? I would say bring your your sense of adventure. Natural dyeing is very different from dyeing with synthetic colorants. You know, the intensity is different. The color is not necessarily permanent or consistent. The patina will change over time. You know, just, you know, bring your sense of adventure and you'll have a great time. You'll you'll be surprised. You'll be amazed. <laughs> Is there anything else that you wanted to share about your dye work today? 
The economist E.F. Schumacher called nature and culture the two great garments of human life that should be served by the two great tools of human life, business and technology. So when I talk about labor-intensive work as opposed to resource-depleting work, this is what I'm thinking about in terms of creating an economy of care, craft, and culture. So care is the time it takes to look after each other. Craft is the time it takes to make, repair things, ourselves to be functional. And culture is the time it takes to produce artistic works of enduring value. And I think that artisan craft, handmade, small batch production, lots of small local businesses, that inter in interconnect in ways is the future I'd like to see. And I think that the age of the conglomerate and monopolized business by a few gigantic companies, well, that's so late 20th century and it's just not the right attitude. You know, I do think about the practice of making things in a world where we have too much stuff and making something new from old things, I think is really great and supporting small local businesses, being a good neighbor, I think are really important. And we just need to reorient ourselves and decide what's important to us and what narrative we'd like to advance. Thanks for having me, Holly. Thanks, Samantha. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. This has been Common Ground Radio, which airs on the second Thursday of each month at 4 p.m. on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM. Archives of previous episodes can be found on WERU.org, as well as on the WERU app. A special thanks to my guests for joining me today. I'd also like to thank my co-host, Caitlin Barker, and the show's editor, Claire Boland. Stay tuned for more great programming.